Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. This is part two to our 100th episode. You know why it's part two? (laughs) Because part one was almost an hour and a half long. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And uh, yeah, so if you're new to the show, welcome, welcome. However, you're not going to understand what the heck is going on unless you go back to last week's episode. (laughs) Yep. And listen to part one. Yeah. I mean, this is part two anyway. Like, what are you doing here? Right. Would you really watch Freddy's Revenge before you watched A Nightmare on Elm Street? Would you really be that person? Like, do you (laughs) even know what podcasts are? (laughs) Well, in that case, you got to go back to episode one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, so this is our 100th episode, part two. Uh, the first episode, we talked about Just a Nightmare on Elm Street mm-hmm. and how Nancy as a final girl and her relationship with her parents and Freddie and as a queer person. And it's great. You should definitely go back and listen to that one. Uh, this one is going to be all about dream warriors and it's going to be all about new nightmare. So here we go. Let's get started. Okay. Woohoo! I, yeah, so like Abby said in the last episode, <laughs> it's time to talk about Dream Warriors, Nightmare on Elm Street 3. According to Kelsey Matson, quote, when she isn't rocking 80s power suits, she serves as a guardian angel figure for the kids, guiding and protecting them from Kruger as best she can, passing along her wisdom. Whereas the first film gave Nancy many shades of emotion, she doesn't get to do much here other than act worried about the children under her care. Worse yet, during the final battle, Kruger kills her by disguising himself as her estranged father. This kind of brings us back to the creepy kind of maybe he's the child molester theory. Oh, no, no. Yeah, there's some psychoanalytical thing about that, isn't there, Abby? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so uh, yeah, Kruger kills her by disguising himself as her estranged father. She uses her dying breath to stab Kruger with his own blade, but that fails to kill him. What does kill him is her not-boyfriend tossing holy water (laughs) on Kruger's bones. One of the rare instances in this franchise where a woman doesn't deliver the final blow. Hmm. Nancy's death doesn't negate her prior accomplishments, and she went out a defiant fighter, but it's a deep shame she couldn't continue to survive, especially after all she did to achieve. It's worth mentioning that in the Innovation comic series, Nightmares on Elm Street, Nancy is actually still alive, but in the dream world, that is. She's a spirit with the powers like Freddy's, but she uses them to fight Kruger and defend those in need. Nancy was always Freddy's equal and opposite, even as a human without supernatural abilities. But she literally becomes the anti-Freddy, the good to his boogeyman, an actual dream warrior. 
And that's an arc conclusion I would have adored to see play out on screen, unquote. Now, I do agree with a lot of this, for sure. But I don't think Nancy gets enough credit in this movie. Abby, you have a lot to say about that. Yeah, agreed. So, here's the thing. Nancy is a scientist. She's a social scientist. Um, I was unfamiliar with Dream Warriors, but when I learned the plot and that Nancy was a psychologist, <laughs> I swooned. And I had never been so proud to be part of a podcast named after such a fucking badass lady. Like, while I agree that it would have been cool to see Nancy survive, I see her new life as someone who exists in dreams as sort of an ascension. So, like, how Kelsey Matson talks about she, like, exists in the comic books in this like sort of dream world thing um as a psychologist you study all of these mysterious workings of the brain well and if you're a neuroscientist as well too um you do this to help people primarily and to explore the dark corners of the mind and to unlock these secrets of consciousness and nancy is searching for the answers to her own traumas while realizing that her experiences could lend help to those who came after her. So she becomes the person that she needed as a teen. And to be really honest with you, I have yet to meet someone in psychology who hasn't had their own brush with trauma. And maybe not so much psychology, but specifically like in the therapy department. The Liebenator wrote an essay on the film, and they capture something really moving about it that I wanted to share. And they say, it isn't until Nancy arrives that the teens finally gain the comfort of an understanding ear, someone who has fought the same exact horror they have and believes them completely. The way the children rally around Nancy is surprisingly moving for a slasher film, and it's both what elevates this movie in the beginning and they also say it ultimately drags it back down in the end. Chances are, if you're not particularly sensitive to the subject of mental health, you're probably just waiting for the kills to start. And that's okay. That's what you came for, right? But if you've ever dealt with any of the issues these teens are facing or are close to someone else who has, then this movie is a completely different animal. Mm. These characters seem real. Their situation is actually quite tragic, and a part of you desperately wants them to survive their ordeal. So, while the writer of this essay goes on to say that they find the tongue-in-cheek way these teens die distasteful, for example, Freddie's mockery at Taryn's drug overdose, I think... Yeah. Eh, I think, honestly, that mockery is actually a very important statement in this film mm. um and just kind of another trigger warning for everyone this discussion might get a little bit hairy so bear with me because i'm sure a lot of our listeners have had similar mental health experiences to us so just a disclaimer at this point we're going to be talking about some pretty triggering stuff so skip ahead or we'll see you next time and we love you and stay safe so i want to quickly state that there's no excuse, no excuse for making fun of someone struggling. Like, we we all struggle from time to time. Sometimes it's a constant struggle. <laughs> yes. However, something Dream Warriors addresses is not only the faulty medical and mental health care system, 
but the way these teens struggle up until the very bitter end. And um, I wish that we could go into like a deep dive on all of these characters. I think that would be really cool. But I'm going to really this is we're already in doing part two. (laughs) I know. I know. These films are so good, but it's like, oh, okay. So I'm really going to hone in on Taryn. Because to be really honest, she is my favorite in this film, and I have worked with clients in very similar situations to her. So I can't wait to hear about it. So let's talk about the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't all just neon and cocaine. Um, (laughs) Yes, it was. Yeah, you're right. You're right. (laughs) So the 80s did a really brilliant job of bringing some of these issues that we see in the film to the forefront. But I don't think we were at a point where we were really ready to start talking about solving the issues that those who are disparaged faced. Addicted individuals, black people suffering from mental health diagnoses without the proper treatment, The way we basically shun disabled people in our country, like, it was a lot worse in that decade, but it's, you know, we still are (laughs) out here fighting the good fight and trying to put everyone on equal ground at this point. Um, So pop culture was really bringing this stuff to light, and I would say that it was still pretty fringe to talk about it. Psychology at this point was in a really delicate position, so I think that therapists focused on really tame, one-size-fits-all treatment. They kind of wanted to stay within the parameters of what they knew was safe, and while we were making, like, leaps and bounds forward, I think that treatments weren't really person-centered. So... Psychologists are still kind of considered the underdog when it comes to social sciences, but, you know, we're gaining ground slowly but surely. And Nancy in the film wants to use this breakthrough drug to help these teens survive. And it basically, like, shuts down your ability to dream. Right. So she truly believes in its ability to help them because she has been helped. So this method is such a catch-22 because she's using the anecdotal evidence from her own life and her emotion rather than science as a way to try to save them. However, she is of pure heart. Like, we all know that Nancy is a helper and she that's all she wants to do is just help people. So, right. She, there's no evil intent with this drug. Right. Exactly. Um. And she also uses her intuition coupled with that training and prior knowledge to help her come to the conclusion that none of these other methods are working and these kids are dying. So this is a great metaphor for what we've been missing in mental health all along. And Dream Warriors is one of the first films, not just horror films, that I have seen come out of the 80s with this at its forefront. Mm. As a budding psychologist and a mental health advocate and a mom and a person who cares for others that have suffered from what these teens go through, it was astounding to watch this play out on screen. Wow. And for Nancy, this job is not about a paycheck or the prestige that comes with being a doctor. It's about that person-centered care because she knows what it's like to not be believed. And I think that element is so, so important when it comes to caretaking of any kind. Mm. So I want to talk about 
adolescent mental health in the 1980s. Um, Mental health was kind of its own beast, but then when you add, like, being a teenager to that, it it becomes a whole different ballgame. Sure. So I want to touch on some of the history that was happening in our country at this time. So according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, in the late 1970s and throughout the 1980s, NAMI, which is short for National Alliance for Mental Illness, um, NAMI advocates had little to work with when it came to spreading awareness. There was no email, no internet, no social media, but what they did have was a grassroots effort intent on challenging the status quo, armed with fax machines. No! (laughs) I wonder if some of our listeners might not know what fax machines are. (laughs) Maybe not. Um, For all of you teeny tiny babs out there, fax machines, you can like put a piece of paper in and send it by machine to another office. It's pretty great. (laughs) Um, So armed with fax machines, phone trees, and hand-stuffed packets sent through the mail, these champions began setting the stage for the next 40 years of mental health advocacy. What initially helped them propel NAMI into public discourse was the media. NAMI advocates went to traditional outlets such as Newsweek, The Washington Post, television news programs, anything they could get to help get the word out. In 1984, NAMI's first ever public service announcements, Shattered Dreams and Scrapbook, aired across the country. Also, side note, for anyone who wants to check those out, um, they are on YouTube, I believe, but they are pretty tough to watch. Like, Shattered Mm. Dreams focuses on um, domestic violence, and uh, for a commercial, it's pretty graphic. Right. So, just a heads up for anyone who might want to check those out. Um, It was a different time. (laughs) We weren't as trauma-informed as we are now. Um, So a handful of trailblazing celebrities also became influential during this time, including Mike Farrell, actor of MASH fame, 60 Minutes news anchor Mike Wallace, and actress Patty Duke. They gave the public its first taste of storytelling through the eyes of people with mental illness. As respected veterans in their careers, the trio opened up about their personal experiences with mental illness, bravely accepting the potential ramifications. By sharing their stories, these advocates showed the public that anyone can have mental illness, even the famous faces Americans knew and loved. Right. So aside from this, there were also a ton of projects going on with other foundations that included Mental Health America, that fought politically for policy change when it came to funding research and programs aimed at tackling the roles that socioeconomic status played in mental health. A lot of emphasis was focused on providing family support, but there was still a lot that was flying under the radar, like effects of global events, teens grappling with their parents' rising divorce rates, and a very scary landscape filled with uncertain economic conditions. We were also coming out of the Vietnam era. So while we got people like Tom Savini out of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> we also had a lot of people coming back faced with these horrific dreams and disabilities that were being covered up with opioids and PTSD that affected their families. Wow, yeah. So this kind of brings us back around to Taryn and 
some of the experiences of the other kids. So according to an article by Nature.com called Tracing the Opioid Crisis to Its Roots, racial attitudes and socioeconomic trends also helped the opioid epidemic to gain a foothold in the United States. Purdue Pharma focused on the initial marketing of OxyContin to suburban and rural white communities. That strategy took advantage of the prevailing image of a drug addict as an African-American or Hispanic person who lived in the inner city to head off potential concerns about addiction, says Helena Hansen, an anthropologist and psychiatrist at NYU Langone Health in New York City. The company targeted doctors who were serving patients that were not thought to be at risk for addiction, Hansen said. There was a definite racial subtext to that. The hardest hit communities can be found in the United States of West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, and New Hampshire. They are communities where there is a problem of underemployment. There is a problem of concentration of poverty, says Magdalena Sirda, an epidemiologist at NYU Langdon Health. The terms deaths of despair has arisen to describe the suicides and opioid overdose deaths of white people in parts of the United States that have been affected by deindustrialization and economic decline. So, this was happening in Ohio. No, where the original, no surprise. <laughs> yeah, that's where the original Elm Street takes place. Yes. <laughs> and while the opioid crisis really ramped up in the 90s, people were most definitely suffering in silence in the 80s. So part of the problem was the information didn't spread as fast, so it could have likely been just as bad during this decade, and we just really didn't know it. Um, Jennifer Rubin, the person who plays Taryn in the film, she had an interview with Daily Dead back in 2017, in which she recounts her experience playing Taryn. In the article, Derek Anderson writes, For Taryn and fellow patients like Joey and Will, with whom she charmingly plays a Dungeons and Dragons type board game before bedtime. I was so happy that that was in this movie. I know. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, falling asleep at Weston Hills is a horrifying experience, but being awake can also be dangerous. This is especially true for Taryn, who one night steps out of the bathroom to encounter a sleazy orderly who, knowing Taryn's history with shooting up, is looking to score Taryn some pharmaceuticals from the dispensary. In this moment, Taryn faces a threat just as real and uncomfortable as anything Freddy Krueger could throw at her. She's offered a clear path to relapse, to the intoxicating yet deadly highs of her past. Reuben imbues Taryn with a palpable vulnerability in this moment, and we honestly don't know what her response will be until she shows us just how strong her character is with a firm refusal of the drugs that are practically being offered to her on a silver platter. In this film, though, it's the severed heads that are served on a silver platter. I still find this scene as suspenseful as any dream sequence in Nightmare 3, with Taryn telling the orderly to fuck off, becoming an empowering moment for her character, and setting the stage for her later showdown with Freddy Krueger. So, <laughs> Taryn's life is a waking nightmare. Like, she's supposed to be in a therapeutic setting, 
and on the path to recovery. And even there, she cannot find respite because of the shady-ass guy who works there. Right. While this was infuriating to see, um, uh, this is the reality. Like, Taryn would have been considered one of the less dead that we hear about so often in true crime because of the stigmas attached to her addiction. And I really do feel like if anything bad transpired between her and the orderly, no one would have believed her and nothing would have been done about it. And I think the audience senses this too. Um, There are a lot of working parts in this hospital. And unless you're looking closely or really listening to the details like Nancy does, really, really bad things happen without any recognition. And I think... Taryn is a really great representation of that disparity in the film. So that same article goes on to talk about that final showdown scene with Freddy. Outside of their horrifying symbolism to Taryn, Freddy's syringe fingers have enjoyed a growing legacy over the years. And while reflecting on her character's death, Ruben discusses how that scene resonated with drug users in real life. I get a lot of fan mail from people who walked away from drugs after seeing that as kids. They were probably just at the point where they were getting stoned and stuff, and then they went to see that movie, and then all of a sudden they were like, I'm never getting stoned again. (laughs) Where Nancy Reagan failed. Yes, exactly. Taryn (laughs) was victorious. Yeah. So I I just got to address that last sentence real quick and say that... (laughs) Weed will not get you addicted to heroin. (laughs) No. That's a super outdated viewpoint, but I think we get what she's trying to say here. Right, of course. Yeah, and I think the immense pressure to stay abstinent from all things bad as a teen can make us turn into some... can make us turn to some pretty harmful coping mechanisms, and they... that thinking sends us on extreme pathways to feeling anything like so, remotely pleasurable. What you're saying is Abby, we should do drugs. <laughs> Listen, do things like do the weed, okay? Do the mushrooms. Do the weed. <laughs> Don't do anything else, please. And if you do if you do things like ketamine and LSD, go to a clinic. have someone administer it to you for therapeutic reasons don't do this shit on your own oh my god but you know for teens it's a slippery slope because your brain isn't fully developed when it comes to impulse control and decision making which is why teens who seem more mature (laughs) probably have experienced some sort of trauma that's led them to a place of having to make very important decisions. Wow. Yeah, it's not that they're particularly mature. They're just in survival mode. I didn't realize that. So, So definitely don't call a child mature or an old soul unless you really, really mean it. Yes. Well, that also kind of... um. This is a a separate topic, but an important one that kind of plays into like the whole older men dating younger girls or like anyone older and younger who could be in like a predatory relationship. Sweet, sweet children, you are not mature for your age. I'm sorry. You're not. 
you are being groomed and manipulated. And it's not your fault. It just happens. And I think a lot of people use this as a way to kind of dismiss the abuses that happen to teens and to children. They're like, oh, they're so mature. They're so grown up and adult and blah, blah, blah. You should not be making serious, serious life decisions when you're 14, 15, 16. That should not be on you. Have a childhood. Enjoy yourself. Right. Okay. That's my tangent. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Um, So to go on, I think that Taryn and this group of kids seem so adult and experienced because of that survival mode and that trauma. Um, Nancy recognizes this because she was forced to see past her own impulsiveness to save those around her. And Well, yeah. I mean, like we mentioned in the first part of this episode, she had to be her own parent. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, she's she's doing the same thing. And we'll talk more about like cycles and trauma cycles later. But according to Rolling Hills Hospital, because the prefrontal cortex has not fully developed, so that's that like whole front area of your brain behind like your eyeballs and stuff like that. Um, (laughs) Young people have difficulty making rational decisions and regulating their emotions, both of which can spell danger when coupled with offers to try drugs and alcohol. In young people, there are weak connections among the prefrontal cortex itself, as well as weak connections between the prefrontal cortex and the nucleus accumbens a component of the limbic system involved in the brain's reward system, explained Dr. Nora D. Valco, director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, in her keynote address. Volkow, who has pioneered the use of brain imaging to study how drugs affect the brain, explained how even children who grew up in a supportive environment can become addicted. The briefing from Aspen Brain Forum explains... Cheryl Heaton of the New York University College of Public Health discussed how little emphasis has been placed on public education and cultural tactics to prevent people from trying drugs in the first place, per the briefing. So we really, really want Taryn to survive. Right. But the unfortunate reality is that not every teen will survive addiction. And often it is by no fault of their own, just like Taryn's death wasn't her fault. She was doing everything right, and it wasn't enough to save her. And that is the true horror that this film taps into. I think we talked about this before. I think when we did the Evil Dead episode, Mm -hmm. um, nobody grows up to say, I want to be an addict. Yes. Nobody decides, I want to be addicted to something. Yes. It, it happens, and then you are addicted. Nobody wishes for that to happen to themselves. Right. Like, these, these are still people who have goals and dreams and families, and maybe some of them don't have families, but that doesn't make them any less valuable. Sure. Um, and... Really, it isn't just Taryn. It's the rest of these kids, too. It could be addiction. It could be disability. It could be mental illness. Like, they are 
they are in a place, whether they're forced to be there or not, and they are working towards their own healing. So really, like I said, they're doing everything right. So it isn't fair and it's really ugly. And she is mocked even in death because Freddie just views her as another addict. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Freddie, much like society, didn't see her previous struggles. He didn't see the work she was doing in therapy to try and get better and overcome addiction. All he knew, and all many people will ever know, is that someone overdosed and died at the hands of their vices, not realizing that these people often go down fighting. And it's incredibly tragic. So this movie is important for so many reasons. And um, like I said, I really focused in on Taryn because she is someone who is very near and dear to my heart. And it's something that I see and deal with every day. And um, it, in a, in a way, was a little bit triggering for me to watch. Mm. Um, like as a mental health specialist and stuff like that, you kind of see this on a daily basis. You see people's struggles, but you are working, you're helping them work towards that common goal of wanting to get better. Right. And it is unfortunately very common that people will be doing good and doing good and they'll like, they'll be on the rise and things are going well in their life and then something will happen and they'll get triggered and that can be the end. And yeah. so it is incredibly sad. Um and while this movie, you know, has those one-liners and stuff like that and it's very popular among Freddy fans and it's kind of where we see that silly side of Freddy come out. It sure. is also highlighting all of these cultural problems that we have. And Freddy reminds me of like, I saw this bumper sticker the other day and it was, it said something like, I Narcaned your honor student. And the person, yeah, the person obviously was like an EMT or like in the, in the healthcare professions. And I was like, This is so insensitive to, it's literally an epidemic that we are seeing. And Freddie kind of reminds me of that humor that we kind of um, inject into our feelings about who addicts are and who mentally ill people are and what they represent in our society. And I think the fault there is that... (laughs) we're missing the obvious and it's that these are diseases and it's not who these people are. We aren't defined by this. And I think that that was something that Nancy really tried to emphasize in the film as well. Yeah. In in talking to these teens and in going to their groups and saying like, listen, I hear what you're saying. I've been there before. The teens found like a real comfort in Nancy's presence because I feel like she was the first person to really sit down with them and be like, Okay, like I hear your struggles and I see what you're going through and it's real. It's not fake. You're not imagining it. These doctors are just shitty and they're not paying attention to you. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you felt a real kinship to her in this movie. Oh, I absolutely did. And 
I hadn't seen it before, so I didn't know that Nancy becomes like a psychology intern. Mm -hmm. So I was super excited about that. But then at the same time, I was like, holy shit, that makes so much sense because she has been through so much trauma. Yes. (laughs) So, you know, like I mentioned, a lot of people who um, kind of grow into that profession or that field of science often go through something themselves and that kind of like peer advocacy and like that one-on-one with someone else who is sharing those experiences with you can be extremely helpful and I think this film too does a really great job of highlighting the difference between the one psychiatrist that works with the kids she's like an older lady so she's from an older generation she's trying things that are safe that are like within the parameters of psychiatry and how it was dealt with back then and then you have nancy kind of stepping onto the scene who is new and fresh and she wants to try these new ideas and right now what we're seeing in mental health is still the same thing almost 30 years later Unfortunately, you have those two ideas kind of clashing against each other and we're making like small progress, but not really. So, right. Yeah, I think it was really interesting to have that guy. I don't even remember his name. That's how much he doesn't matter. Having that guy (laughs) as like the in between between Nancy and the and the older psychiatrist. Yes. He had a weird arc where he had to learn about having faith and stuff and like not have not just rely on science and whatever and I was like okay sure it was a very weird thing and I felt like it took away from the story of Nancy and these kids and yes yes I think that's one of the reasons why Kelsey Matson said like I wanted more Nancy and I don't even think even if Nancy did still die at the end uh, I think it still wouldn't have mattered so much if we had more of her in this film. And I think it was deeply tragic to not have her and the kids d- go on more dream adventures, you know? Yes. We yes. really focused on where Freddy came from. We focused on the men trying to stop him. Like, this film was way more patriarchal than mm-hmm. the first film, for sure. I agree. I definitely agree. I think it's an important one, but unfortunately, with that sprinkled in there, I think it kind of <laughs> kind of dulls down the shine a little bit. It does. So. I think you're right because a lot of what you said was super important, and it yeah, it got overshadowed a bit by yes. what the men were doing in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yes, and that's oh just God. something that happens with Nancy in general in A Nightmare on Elm Street. You see, final girls like. Sid, especially from Scream, mm-hmm. who are just as important as Ghostface. Because Ghostface is played by different people. But mm-hmm. but Sid, Sydney, is always the hero. Sydney is just as much an equal part of this whole thing as the as Ghostface is. Laurie Strode is just as important as Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. You really see Nancy fall by the wayside in a lot of ways. Freddie gets way more attention than yeah. Nancy ever does. And that's why there's a great documentary called I Am Nancy. You can watch it for free on YouTube. 
it's a really great documentary and she interviews like different people from the Nightmare on Elm Street film series and she talks about like Nancy's like role in the series and stuff. I mean cuz Nancy gets overshadowed and Heather Langenkamp especially also gets overshadowed a lot. Yeah. Because Freddie is just too darn likable and mm-hmm. it's um it's a little bit problematic. <laughs> yes. Am I saying you shouldn't love Freddy because he's really funny and he's edgy? He's the edge lord, basically. <laughs> no, sure, whatever. Like, yeah, it's it's funny. He has good quotes. Like, whatever. Like, it's okay to like villains. We are absolutely all apart. Like, you should like Disney villains. Like any villain. Like they're just store. They're just characters and stories. Like you have every right to love villains just as much as you love heroes. But I think that Nancy in particular really gets overshadowed and um, it's kind of like she kind of does in Dream Warriors for sure. Yeah. Um, But you know what? That's not the last time we see Nancy because we see her again and for a final time in Wes Craven's New Nightmare from 1994. Woohoo! Okay, so Dream Warriors and New Nightmare were both new watches for me. Um, I know you had seen New Nightmare when it like first came out or something, like a long time ago, you said. No, um, I, I actually watched it for the first time when I was in college, but that was like over a decade ago now. Okay, so it was still a long time ago, yeah. <laughs> yes, yep. Um, so I had never seen it. Uh, I had never seen Dream Warriors and I had never seen New Nightmare. They were both new watches for me for this episode. Um, I had heard through social media and whatnot that Nancy died in Dream Warriors. So, like, I knew that and I knew the whole welcome to primetime bitch quote. Like, you know, all the stuff that you know (sighs) about Dream Warriors. Um, But when it came to New Nightmare, I didn't know a gosh darn thing about that movie. I honestly didn't even know it was supposed to be a meta film. Yes! I started watching it and I was like, what is happening? I was completely taken off guard. Like, I had no idea. Um, So that was actually really great because, you know, how people say, like, you know, they wish they could watch Star Wars for the first time, you know, or Empire Strikes Back, really, for the first time over and over again to get that feeling. I kind of felt that way with New Nightmare. I was like, I'm so glad I didn't know anything about this because I was really able to enjoy it 100%. Yes. Um, And I got to thank Amber Knapp. Who told me that Nancy was in, you know, quote unquote, Nancy was in New Nightmare Mm -hmm. Uh, because I didn't know that either. And so I was like, oh, okay." And because they told me that, that's when I decided, you know, like, we should probably talk about all three Nancy films to do this 100th episode of course now we're on part two because it's so long but i know i think we really needed to i think she really needs to be talked about in dream warriors like you did because you brought to light a lot of things that i didn't know about mental health and addiction and stuff that that kind of stuff was happening in the 80s and whatnot um and i think a lot needs to be said about nancy and heather in this movie yes um so yeah sorry that like that's why this episode's so long but it needs to be epic because nancy is the reason why we called our show good morning nancy even if we only really knew her from the first nightmare on elm street film i think that it really solidified our choice for me after watching the next two films i'm just so glad that we did so anyway the whole film 
New Nightmare was a huge surprise to me. And I gotta say, this film has been living rent-free in my brain since (laughs) I watched it a few weeks ago for the first time. Mm -hmm. I cannot stop thinking about it. I was legitimately crying while researching this film and writing about it for this episode. It struck a huge nerve with me. And yes, like the mom and son stuff is totally a huge part of it. But the more I thought about this film, the more cosmic the film felt. Mm -hmm. Like it feels to me like, I don't know, this film I feel like is extremely spiritual. Even after like watching the movie a few times and really thinking about it and letting it like simmer in my mind, I'm still having a hard time putting into words how powerful this film was for me. Hmm. So I really hope that I can do it a little bit of justice with the words that I can find <laughs> to express myself. Um, I may get a little rambly, but I I think this is really the only way that I can do this. <laughs> Make it rambly. So thank you. So I know a lot of people feel like you can watch this movie without knowing anything about the franchise, which is true. But I also feel like you need to see the first movie and you need to see Dream Warriors because I think it both of those films together are important in order to experience New Nightmare, especially since Nancy dies in Dream Warriors. Um, the character of Kristen, right, in Dream Warriors says something along the lines of, I'm going to dream you into a beautiful dream to Nancy. And I mean, if that's not deeply spiritual in its own right, then I don't know what is. And I almost want to look at the story as Heather being Nancy reincarnated, you know? Yeah. Like, if we want to look at it this way, Kristen may may have dreamed Nancy into Heather's reality. And everything that happened in A Nightmare on Elm Street and The Dream Warriors was just a movie. So, like, she experienced it, but through being an actor. Mm-hmm. So it gets kind of, like, weird and cosmic in that sense. If you think about it, like, she's dreamed into, like, a new life, you know, like, where she may have experienced these things still, but they weren't actually real. Right. So that kind of makes it really kind of spiritual in a way, which is kind of fun. Um, and, uh, yeah, or whatever. Like, she's just... have Nancy is now in Heather's reality. Mm-hmm. And everything starts good with Heather, but Freddy invades that dream as well. Because the way Heather describes talking about Nancy and the franchise in this movie, it's like she knows about this past life, but doesn't want to remember it. Yeah. And this whole idea of knowing people from this past life... And, like, I don't mean, like, figuratively, but I mean, like, quite literally in a past life. And remembering the lives that you had before reminded me of this book that I just read called The Midnight Club by Christopher Pike. Have you read any Christopher Pike? No, I have not. Okay, so um, I picked up this book because I heard that Mike Flanagan was making a Netflix TV show about it. And Mike Flanagan had did um, Midnight Mass and... Oh, he's done a bunch of horror movies and stuff. Like he's, you know, he did the the Haunting of Hill House TV show on Netflix. Um, so uh, I picked up this book to read it before the show came out, and I thought it would be like a Fear Street YA type book. But oh no, it was not that. It was better. 
it was this cosmic spiritual spiritual journey about life and death and pain and love and reincarnation and it's written for teenagers wow yeah and i won't go on because i know that the show is coming out soon it's coming out in october so i don't want to spoil anything but i can truthfully tell you that no book has ever made me cry ever not even like when harry potter came out you know people cried about the end of harry potter i did not um, but this book, <laughs> this book made me cry real hot tears. <laughs> wow. Yes. The ending was be- the most beautiful thing I'd, I'd ever read in my life. And oh my God, I had, I had literally just finished this book right before I watched New Nightmare for the first time. And the themes felt so similar and so connected to me. Again, a nerve was hit. And I have always been a very spiritual person, but I think that part of me, that part of me has heightened even more after having my son. Yup. Because for me, I had never in a million years thought that I could love someone so purely and so unconditionally as my own child. And I mean, it's enough to make you burst. It mm-hmm. truly is. And and you and I have talked about this in the past, and I don't know if we've talked about it on an episode or maybe just we've just talked about it in person or through text or whatever, but when you become a parent, you and death itself, like death with a capital D are holding hands constantly because you have this human who needs you, you know, Mm -hmm. or else they will die. It's (laughs) a lot of pressure. (laughs) Yep. And it's really scary. And even when your child grows up and leaves the house and does their own thing there's always this sense of doom and dread lingering over you as a parent you're always worried about them yeah um parents moms they are constantly riding this fine line between the spirit world and the mortal world because of this yeah in my opinion so this idea of always being so close to death is really heavy for me but also incredibly divine and in th- ethereal. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I Like I said, like, you almost feel, I don't know. It's like, it's so overwhelming. You almost feel too mortal to be able to handle it. Yeah. Which is yeah. why, like, I'm just, I'm like, my, t- my eyes are welling up because it's like, it's so overwhelming. Yeah. And you feel like I'm too human to deal with this. This is not something humans should deal with. I'm too close to this cosmic realization, you know? Well, it's scary because anything can happen at any moment. And that thread is a very, very thin. Yes. It doesn't take a lot to break it. No, it doesn't. And so there, it, it, it feels like I'm in a boat on the edge of the world and, like, the water is, like, pouring off the edge. And I'm, like, just riding that that boat. Yep. And it's, like, I can see why when you become a parent, certain things, like, that involve your kid are so emotional. Like, things, movies that they love or things that they say or, you know, whatever. Things that they do or things that they love make you cry. Because yeah. it's, like... It's just so much, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. So Heather is dealing with the sudden death of her partner, her husband. 
Um, and she's also dealing with this very random stalker, which I guess Heather Langenkamp in real life had a stalker. Oh, so, God. Yeah, so that adds to the realness of this character in the movie. Um, the earthquakes were also real, uh, but in the concept of the, you know, in the in the film, they're a great metaphor for her life instability crumbling under her, mm-hmm. um, or her dream life crumbling, however you want to look at this film. Um, and she also has a young son uh, who, by the way, is depressed and also suicidal. Mm-hmm. Um, Abby, you and I were just talking about how so many young children are depressed and anxious now because of social media, family trauma, and on top of that, all of these kids are hitting puberty way sooner than they're supposed to be biologically. Yep. So that's something that, like, you and I and other parents and and Heather have weighing over us. And that's, like, how I think us as parents can really relate to the trauma that Heather is dealing with with her son in New Nightmare. And, like, the New York Times podcast, uh, The Daily, just had a really sad but great episode about all these kids who are super depressed. And, I mean, they're young. They're not, like, they're nine, six, seven, eight, nine years old. Oh, yeah. And it's so terrifying to think that you're, oh, my God, I'm going to start crying. It's so terrifying to think that your innocent child is so, so sad that they don't want to live anymore. And being someone who had suicidal thoughts as an adult, it just makes my heart hurt so much because I don't wish that on anyone, especially a child. Yeah, I mean, they... They are seeing and hearing things that they are not ready for, that they are right. not supposed to see and hear. And right. to kind of highlight that a little bit more, it's almost like we are moving backwards in time because, you know, we we have a really long-ass life expectancy now, but... It's sort of like when you look back on, like, the pioneer times or, like, the pilgrim times and kids were getting married at, like, 12, 13, 14, having their first kids by the time they're, like, 14, 15 years old. It's because they had to do it. They had to procreate to keep human beings going. But I... I think that it has a lot to do with the amount of stress and trauma that they experienced at that time. Sure. Like, and it's circling back around again. Like, these kids are hitting puberty so early because we have all of this stress around us constantly. Yes. It never goes away. And, yeah, we have it because of, like, media and social media and stuff like that, but... You know, if you think about it, the the pilgrims that came here and landed on Plymouth were also surrounded by stress 24-7. Right. It was the elements. It was disease. It was running out of food. It was not knowing if you were going to live through childbirth. It's like all of this stuff. And the difference now is that 
we don't have we don't have to procreate we don't have to keep human existence going we have come to realize the absolutely insane ramifications that that can have on a child so they're kind of stuck in this free fall where they are like okay i have all this shit going on around me constantly but like i'm not like expected to like take the reins start a family when i'm 13 like i'm not having children i'm not like raising a family so like what do i do with these feelings what do i do with like there's no way to displace it so is it even a surprise really i i mean i don't think it is i really don't right yeah and like I don't know. It's just just the thought of of a child being so sad and so overwhelmed that they don't want to live. It blows my mind. And it's just like, you're a kid. Like, your life hasn't even started, you know? But it's because, like you said, they're so overwhelmed with trauma and with societal expectation that they have nowhere to put these feelings. Yeah. And it, it is really so, sucks. It's so fucked. Yeah. It really is. Right. And, and I mean, so this, like, yeah, go th- ahead. This film came out in 1994. Yeah. I was a year old. <laughs> I right. was a year old. And it's right. only gotten worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, her son, her son is feeling this way because his father is dead and his yeah. mother is so overwhelmed with her own trauma that he is holding so much sadness. That he doesn't know where to put it. I mean, he says, like, he tries to climb to the top of that playground thing, and he tries to jump off, and he says he wanted God to take him. What? How old is this kid in this movie? He's, like, eight or whatever? Maybe younger? No, I think, I think he's five. Oh, my God. So he's even younger. But, like, when I watched this movie, I was like, this is not shocking to me. No. I, I hear stories of kids this age being... Now, in 2022, I hear stories of kids this age being suicidal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's so sad. Um, so I don't want to ramble too much, but Nancy, a.k.a. young Heather, doesn't feel this way that we know of. Um, she fights for herself and her friends, and she has this raw grit to stay alive and to beat Freddy. Um, and sometimes when you are a teen... Yeah, you get scared and there's, but there's like this confidence to succeed and this confidence that you will never die. And so you're able to do things that maybe like would, would, would normally scare you maybe as an adult, but as a teen, they don't scare you. Right. Um, and eventually as you do become an adult, you break a bit and you've been through enough trauma and you've been through enough pain as an adult where that confidence to succeed and to live is sort of like whittled down a bit. Um, You can wake up from your nightmares and see how bright it is, but then you're bogged down by the Freddy car once you reach adulthood, which is sort of shown in A Nightmare on Elm Street 1. Like, Nancy even gets that gray streak of hair from all the stress that she's dealing with. Yeah. You know, like, she is growing up in that movie, and at the end, she's taken away. As much as that scene might not make sense to us really thematically, like emotionally, it kind of does now make sense. Mm-hmm. 
So to see Heather be so worried and sad for her child, who I, as I said is like eight, but like you said, it's probably only five, really five years old <laughs> and is dealing with these dark feelings. Like, like I said, it really struck a nerve when I first watched it. Yeah. But to slightly change the topic just a bit, there's also this sense of being overwhelmed by it all and as the parent and you want to go back to when you were ignorant, I guess, is maybe, maybe not the best way to say it, but like before you, before, like when you back to when you were Nancy and you could handle all this stuff, you know? Mm, yeah. So like, even if we do look at Nancy and Heather as figurative past and present lives, the old you is gone. The world and life that you lived before your child was born is gone. It's, it's different. The fantasy forever young life is over and there is no more Nancy. Now you are Heather. And um, you've seen shit that you can't unsee. And I think Nancy can be looked at as Heather's younger self. The one before children, the one who saved her town, who had a successful career as a psychologist, who was self-partnered, right? Still thin and young and smart and who, quote unquote, died as a hero. Heather is Nancy after motherhood, after marriage, and becoming Nancy again at the end of New Nightmare is Heather rediscovering who she once was. She will never be that person again, but she sees, like, but she's at least, like, found her again, and she can bring that back into her current life, that bravery, um, that, like, grittiness, you know? And yeah. a New Nightmare is, like, have you ever seen the movie Tully? No, but I have heard of it, and it's been on the watch list for, like, forever, because I was like, oh, look at that, relatable content. Right. <laughs> Tully... It, it's Diablo Cody's movie. Um, that movie, talk about striking a nerve. That movie had me crying for a week. It was mm -hmm. so good. And I feel like New Nightmare is like the horror movie version of Tully. Yeah. If you've seen it, you kind of get what I'm saying. <laughs> but um, yeah, I know this might not feel true to everyone. But like I said earlier, I really feel like my sense of horror and darkness uh has just and like my shadow self is the strongest it has ever been since becoming a parent and the monsters that used to not feel real or the monsters that used to feel like I could beat uh or that you know metaphorically are just in a movie they feel incredibly real now and they are in the real world and they are haunting you and they're haunting your child so we can look at Heather using the A Nightmare on Elm Street movies as a metaphor for true darkness and horror in the real world. So when she sees her son watching the movie, she, like the horror, this horror movie that she was in as a young woman playing a child, she metaphorically isn't denying he watched a scary film, like it's kind of presented in the movie. Um, but if you want to look at it even more metaphorically, she's looking at it as like her past trauma. That she's trying to keep away from her son and preserve his innocence and pure happiness for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. I so, wholehearted. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I'm just saying like it's I think if we need to look at it that way, it's not her just being like, oh, my God, don't watch a scary movie. It's her being like, oh, my God, like, don't don't 
look at or understand my trauma from when I was a teenager. Yeah. That's, I think, what it's supposed to say. So. Yes. Well, she's doing the same thing her parents did almost. Sure. Until the end when she kind of, you know, when they work together. Break the cycle. Break the cycle. Sure. Exactly. So like, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And what is really cool about this franchise is we get to see Nancy at all these stages in life. And I realized when I was watching New Nightmare, she is the most physically battered out of all three. Like, yes, she dies in Dream Warriors, but, like, she's got, like, cuts and bruises all over, and she's got a limp when Mm -hmm. she walks, and... It's almost as if she's like a weathered lioness. Like, you know how you see pictures and they have like scars all over their faces and they're just like, ugh, like, it's, they just look tough. Yeah. She's kind of being pulled in every direction to be like a wife, a mother, actress, friend, victim, and advocate. And that stress and trauma has really worn on her through the years. Um, She gets so tired but she never stops going even without the support of her partner and what I absolutely love about this film is that instead of Nancy taking it all on by herself she reaches out to the community and she has like her little village and yeah all of her little like actor friends (laughs) and director friends and producer friends yeah yeah and I think there is this myth surrounding working moms and moms in general that you've got to carry the load and you've got to do it while smiling and making everyone else comfortable Nancy's house is a mess (laughs) yes I do love how normal her house looks, though, by the way. (laughs) Yes. It was so cool to see in a movie. Like, it didn't look like a movie set. It looked like we were, like, in her house. Like, they had just, like, they were like, okay, Heather, we're going to come over and film today. And she was like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. She's got, like, papers on the table. Like, there's just stuff everywhere. I know. Um, So, yeah, she's dealing with these earthquakes every day. And she doesn't, like, bother to straighten the pictures on her wall. She's like, oh, fuck it. (laughs) And she has a nanny for Dylan because she needs help. And she asks her husband to come home and support her while Dylan is sick. Like, that's incredibly healthy. And when we headed into the 90s there was this and i know we've talked about this on the show before but there was this weird girl power movement that happened and we taught young women that like they didn't need anyone else and Mm -hmm. that if you could balance it all with grace and didn't show any emotion that meant that you were empowered right they were basically like be a man and you can be empowered well (laughs) That goes back to this final girl trope where the only way these women can succeed is if they become men. Men. Yeah. Yeah. Which is incredibly toxic for men also because what? Just because you're a man, you don't get to show emotion? No, sure. that's bullshit. Exactly. Absolutely. Such bullshit. Yeah, we're all, we're all fucked. That's great. <laughs> it's just so wonderful, isn't it? But yeah, like we put women on pedestals instead of giving them human qualities like anger and stress mm-hmm. and resentment and... Nancy is actually a really accurate representation of what it means to be a mom in a modern world. And really, that is amazing mental health advocacy for women during this time period. Mm. 
So on top of this, she doesn't let people in the hospital walk all over her either. Right. She knows down to her core what is right for her son. Just like in Dream Warriors when she fought hard to put the teens on meds that would actually help them. Uh, right. <laughs> like, yes. Like, fuck these methods. They're not working. Like, do what actually works. So Nancy is amazing at taking the middle of the road, which is right where you want to be as a mom, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Like, being a mom is one hugely hugely gray area there is no black and white ever i mean Mm -hmm. you can say that about the human experience too nothing is ever really black and white so she knows what she needs to do to get help for dylan but also knows when to say like okay this isn't helping and you're not just gonna take my son from me sure i think a lot of the time parents are afraid to speak up or advocate for their kids because they think someone else might know better or that they'll be judged And Nancy is, like, feral in the way that she fights for what's right for Dylan. I actually very recently had to deal with something like this. Like, long story short, my son has a very normal, like, skin condition. But something else was kind of showing up. And I was a little bit worried about it. And after going back and forth with my son's pediatrician for literally weeks, I finally had to, as my mom says, roar at them. And basically, I said, look, I don't think you are giving my son the correct amount of care, and I don't appreciate being gaslit by you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that I immediately happens. got And I immediately got help, and we figured out it was something else, and it's being treated. And it's just like, I'm not crazy. <laughs> like, yes. I, like, I know my child more than you. Yeah, you're the doctor, but I see him every day. <laughs> and yeah. I, I live with him all the time (laughs) so it's like I know that something is not right and you have to yeah sometimes you have to roar in order for professionals to take you seriously it really sucks yeah dude and like they don't listen to women anyway with regular medical stuff about their own bodies why would they listen to you about your kid (laughs) sure (laughs) it's so so frustrating but anyway yeah I I know that we're not talking about the second film in this episode but i just have to really quickly bring up the line that freddie says in nightmare on elm street 2 when he's at the party where all the kids are by the pool and he says you're all my children now right um when it comes to freddie he wants complete and total control of the children that he hunts he's got such a vice grip on all of them And I think that was a sign of the times. Like, I feel like kids were owned by a lot of things when these films were released, whether that was school, public policy, judgment from your parents and elders, the potential for domestic violence, drugs, alcohol abuse, sexual abuse. Like, Nancy comes in and she is this opposite. And she puts the power in the hands of those who, like her, are plagued by all of these things from childhood and into their adult years. So... When we finally get to New Nightmare, her ultimate test is to free herself. Mm. And when she descends into Freddy's lair through what looks like a birth canal into a pool of water, this could also be like her rebirth. She's her, This is her coming into who she really is. Correct. I agree with that completely. And I really love how she wakes up in this in this land Mm -hmm. and she's wearing her classic jammies that she wears in the first movie 
mm-hmm. and like you know it's like like we said earlier it's her battle armor it's what she uses to help her defeat the generational trauma that's in her family and yeah like we mentioned it ends here it ends with nancy exactly and all of these films center around cycles so your sleep cycle in particular but also trauma cycles and work cycles and life stages and the life cycle and who knows cycles better than people who menstruate Mm -hmm. so um really quickly about sleep stages sleep occurs in five stages so you have wake n1 N2, N3, and REM stage. Um, Stages N1 to N3 are considered non-rapid eye movement, so non-REM sleep, with each stage a progressively deeper sleep. So approximately 75% of sleep is spent in the non-REM stages, with the majority spent in the N2 stage. So very, very rarely do we get to REM sleep. Mm. Which is a it's a problem in itself because that means that we're really not getting a lot of restful sleep. <laughs> wow, yeah. But we've also got menstrual cycles and pregnancy stages too. And we all know <laughs> that the fucking worst part of our cycle is when we get to what I consider the deepest stage. Mm-hmm. So it's the stage where... We're bleeding constantly, and we've got cramps, and we're agitated and hungry, but we're not hungry. And then it lifts, and we start the cycle again. Mm-hmm. Nancy goes through this cycle constantly. Her sleep is no exception. And her REM phase, the deepest, darkest phase of sleep, is where she faces the most challenge in the form of Freddy. Right. So these films are kind of like, (laughs) they're like the menstrual phase of our reproductive cycle. And Freddy is the gross, clumpy blood clots that painfully pass and feel like they're going to kill us. Yep. (laughs) And for many people, this can be true. For years, the disparities in reproductive health and the emphasis placed on ignoring the symptoms of our cycles has led to reproductive disasters that sometimes kill us. So, yeah, it's wow, <laughs> very, very intense. Yeah, that's something I never considered, but it makes a ton of sense when talking about Nancy. And listen, is it really a Good Morning Nancy episode if we're not talking about menstruation? Like, we can't help it's inherently horrific. Yeah. <laughs> Hence yep, why it's always yep. in horror movies. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, you know, something that I mentioned in the first part of this episode was that um, Nancy has to fight Freddy in Freddy's house, right? Yeah. And that is when she's in her REM stage. So even, like, her deepest, darkest sleep stage is not hers. It's Freddy's space. Right. And this kind of goes to, like, the meta-ness of a new nightmare, because New Line Cinema was considered the house that Freddie built. Mm-hmm. And Nancy slash Heather has to deal with that her whole life. Mm-hmm. Because she was in the first A Nightmare on Elm Street, which was the movie that built New Line Cinema. Right. So when Heather is asked to join 
and be in the next movie, she can't escape it. Yeah. She's always going to be a part of it. And she's always going to... And I mean, like, Heather Landkamp in real life seems like she really enjoys it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really interesting that the Heather in this movie, the fictional version of herself, yeah, is a little bit hesitant and maybe even slightly resents it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that, you know, Nancy has to fight Freddy in his house. <laughs> and then New Line Cinema was the house that Freddy built. You know? Exactly. So Nancy and Heather kind of have to deal with it similarly, you know? Yes. I, I want to add something here that has nothing really to do with what we just talked about, but it's time to end this episode. <laughs> so I don't want to forget to add <laughs> yes. this. But I think the fact that Wes Craven in New Nightmare compares Freddy to something really ancient. Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, in mine and Nadia's research for this episode, I saw a lot of articles about fairy tales, which are prominent in New Nightmare. And mythology about around Freddy. And I mean, Craven based Freddy off of his greatest fear, which was a bully. And Aww. it obviously stuck with him enough to make this movie, you know, right. this franchise. Um, but Craven was also said to have based Nancy off of his own mother, who was his protector. Oh. So the idea of Freddy as this ancient being makes sense. But also the idea of Nancy being ancient and being motherly is too. And I saw one article talk about how Freddy could be compared to Hermes in Greek mythology and how the metastructure of New Nightmare was similar to Don Quixote. Mm. But there wasn't really a lot about Nancy's role within mythology and fairy tales when it came to these articles. In all of these films, but mostly in the first film and in New Nightmare, Nancy slash Heather is the princess and the dragon slayer. She is Sleeping Beauty, quite literally, and Prince Philip. And Hot Dog, she's also the three good fairies as well. Why not? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Joseph Campbell's got nothing on Nancy Thompson. (laughs) Heroes can only be men and women can only be mothers. Give me a freaking break, dude. Like, Nancy slash Heather may be a mother, but she is and always will be the hero, too. And I want to end this 100th episode with this last quote by Kelsey Matson. Kelsey says, quote, The characters of Heather and Nancy are markedly similar, both determined, resolute, and caring. The primary difference is Heather's motivation stem from the maternal desire to protect her son, but being a heroic mama bear doesn't define her. Heather's moral courage informed her performance of Nancy, and by becoming Nancy once again, Nancy's story gives Heather the strength to defeat Freddy. The fiction of Nancy was so powerful, it helped a woman in the real world overcome her fears. That imagery is immeasurably powerful." Unquote. Mm. What a great quote. Oh, okay. Wow. So that was our 100th episode. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, wow. Thank you all so much for listening. And uh, if it weren't for you guys, like we wouldn't have made it to 100 episodes. 100 plus one episodes, technically. <laughs> yeah. So holy jumping cats, thank you all so much. And if you really love and appreciate what we do, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard in this show, and normally we don't do it with any help from researchers or editors. And if they do help us, like they did with this episode, um, they do it for free. 
So thank you, Amber and Nadia. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So let us know how much you appreciate our work and our friends' work when they help us out and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. I would really love to start paying these beautiful people to help us out. So (laughs) get on over there. That would be nice. (laughs) That would be nice. Uh, If Patreon isn't your deal, you can always show us your support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. A link to our merch shop and our Patreon is in the show notes of this episode. So check it out. Yes, and we know times are tough right now, so a free way to help the show is following us on social media. Twitter at GoodMorningNan and Instagram at GoodMorningNancyPodcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show, please. Yes, thank you all, and never forget, Black Lives Matter and Trans Lives Matter. So check out this episode's show notes to see how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye!